This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast about race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. Recent highly visible examples of anti-Semitism from the hip-hop artist formerly known as Kanye West and basketball all-star Kyrie Irving got millions of clicks from their millions of followers on social media. Their normalization of anti-Semitism has helped fuel a rise in Jewish-targeted hate from the 405 to the playground. It's not lost on many that some of the most visible recent purveyors of anti-Semitism are Black. There have always been a complicated relationship between the tribes and the village, with some stemming from Jewish investors and families taking advantage of racist systems like redlining and investing in properties and land in historically Black communities. Today, we're joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Zachary Ritter. Zach received his PhD in higher education from the University of California, Los Angeles, focusing on Asian international students across racial interactions. He is currently vice president of leadership development at the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. Zach, you're back and let's get uncomfortable. So Zach, really appreciate you being willing to be here. Enjoy it, uh, join us again. We were talking a little bit about Kyrie and we have Kanye, right? And Kanye just got invited to Mar-a-Lago. Did you know that? Mar-a-Lago, right? With another white supremacist. Yeah, Nick Fuentes, uh, yeah. Right, to maybe print up some White Lives Matter t-shirts. <laughs> but it's interesting, the response I've been seeing related to Kyrie, very, very different, especially in the Black community's response to Kanye. What, what do you attribute that to? What are your thoughts? Well, say more about that, because you were saying that for Kyrie, there were Jewish folks outside of Barclays. Yeah, the 12th tribe, yeah, lined up, you know, and people defending his right for free speech. Now, my challenge with Kyrie is read the room. Just because someone gives you a platform, I know we have Elon Musk and others who have platforms, but just because someone gives you a platform, you have to be responsible related to your followership. Mm -hmm. You know, a young person who, okay, you went to Duke for a year. I don't mean you went to Duke like that. <laughs> I want to do a little research into what you're retweeting and what you're saying is dope. And, you know, sit down with some trusted scholars. One of the things that I appreciate about the LeBron James that is there today, very different from the LeBron that was left Cleveland the first time, is that he surrounds himself with people who can coach him in so very many different ways. And LeBron is seeking out coaching, not just in business and basketball, but in being a man, being a father, being a leader, you know, the work. And it's one of the pieces I would tell Kyrie as a young brother, right? Get around some old heads and just think before you retweet, because then you double down and say, well, I'm like any of any American doesn't have millions and millions of followers who they can influence. It's one of the things that I've noticed just about like on my social, hmm. nobody is defending Kanye, but mm -hmm. in my social circle, as far as social media is, is 
pretty tight with the right people, but there's a lot of people who are speaking up for Kyrie. So I just, I find it, I find it interesting and I just wanted to get your thoughts. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And it hurts my heart to know that it takes two celebrities to get us to talk about the rich history of Black and Jewish solidarity in America. I don't know what that says about the time that we're living in. I mean, I think it says a lot about the time that we're living in. And so I want to get to that history of shared solidarity and fighting together for racial and economic justice. And so we'll get there. But if we're going right into the controversy thing, because we're living in this, uh, what did Naomi Campbell call it, the shock doctrine, we live in this kind of uh, nothing happens in the world unless it outrages us. And then it goes through our media. We are outraged. We have an emotional response to it. And then we have to consume whatever it is. And then we form an opinion. And that makes that makes money for the social media platforms, the clickbait. Uh, our brains have become clickbait for this salacious material. I swear to you, if Kanye or Kyrie had come out and had a nuanced speech about Black and Ashkenazi Jewish relations in America, you and I would never hear about it. But if anybody that has a national platform comes out and says the most outrageous thing about any racial or ethnic or you know faith-based group or gender identity in, in the United States, then all eyeballs go on to them People make money off of the controversy. They get free publicity. This is how partly how Donald Trump won the election from free publicity by saying the most outrageous things. And here we are doing a podcast about outrageous stuff. But okay, this mm -hmm. is the culture we live in. This is the culture we live in. So <laughs> I went to a music concert at the Kia Forum in Los Angeles uh, on Monday and a group called the 1975 was playing. And I, I didn't know their music, but I, I, I liked them. And the lead singer of the 1975 said, remember when Kanye said, George Bush doesn't care about black people? And the whole crowd went, yeah, I remember. And then he says, the irony is now Kanye doesn't care about black people. And I had to, I had to think about that. You know, this, was coming, this was coming from a, from a white musician. And, you know, I also started thinking about OJ. It's like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. In America, if you get a certain amount of money, I think it, it it just does something to your brain, no matter what color you are. And this is a man that had a meteoric rise. I remember in, in I graduated high school in 2004. I had a friend who had a Kanye West shirt and I saw this guy's music video and he was wearing pink and he was talking about Africa Bombada and he was challenging masculinity and he was the truth. And I was like, man, this guy is going to change the game. This guy is amazing. And then his mother died. And he felt, I think, very guilty because he paid for the double surgery that led to his mother's death. And she was a what, an English professor. And after her death, he was never the same. And obviously, there must be some you know, mental health concerns in there as well, because I was reading the text messages between him and p diddy and it was just wild stuff hey diddy i know that you're a federal agent i know that the jews have come sent you to come get me this is my grandfather speaking to you right now and then on top of that you find that he's hanging out with candace owens 
He's hanging out with Nick Fuentes. He's hanging out with Donald Trump. He is distributing White Lives Matter shirts on the front with Pope John Paul II on the back, which and now we find out Nick Fuentes is a white supremacist, neo-Nazi, Catholic supremacist. So are the people that Kanye is hanging out with influencing him? Obviously, Nick Fuentes had to outright the right and said that his group was heckling Turning Point USA, which is already a rightist group. And Nick Fuentes got, he knew how to play the outrage game and had to, you know, say that, um, the, the, he had the audacity to say, we should, I don't want Jews to run Hollywood anymore. I want Catholics to run Hollywood. I don't want Jews to run America anymore. I want Catholics to run America. Because look at the amazing job that they did with Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain when the Catholics ran Spain and they run good governments. You know, let's not think about the genocide they that they did to the natives. They ran good governments. So it's just like picking and choosing from history. Very, very strange stuff. I'm concerned about Kanye. I, I'm not. I think he was trying to drum up controversy, all eyes on him. The next day he says, I'm running for president. I don't think that's a, that's a coincidence. And that so, model works, right? I mean, you have a whole guy who convinced people he was a billionaire, mm -hmm. just putting his name on stuff, mm -hmm. right? So let me put mm -hmm. my name on stuff mm -hmm. and I've declared bankruptcy and then I get a reality show. And mm -hmm. that the ultimate in clickbait because I'm seen as the boss, yeah. I'm seen as opulent, I'm firing people, it yeah. creates notoriety. And my names then are on suits and ties yeah. and things that you associate with wealth and mm -hmm. obtaining things. I mm -hmm. mean, that is the model that he's following. Yeah. And it reminds me of kind of the neo-Nazi gang culture that mm -hmm. you, you find belonging youth people who feel like they don't belong. My tribe is gone. My village is gone. So I'm going to find a village and we're going to unite around hatred and anger to the other, right? Yep. And as you're describing, like you said, I mean, the college dropout kid was bad. I mean, it was a whole <laughs> different thing. And Kanye before that was changing the game in the producing work and yep. the beats he was laying down. And the work he was doing behind the scenes, brilliant dude. But I think the line between brilliance and insanity is really, really thin. We are all there sometimes. And so there's certain things when you're that gifted that you probably shouldn't see. And if you don't have the right people in your life to help you process that, those things and keep you grounded, then other people get you distracted. Get your mind noodling about things it doesn't need to be thinking about. Talk a little bit about the juxtaposition, the Kyrie situation, how that's playing in the Jewish community. I talked a little bit about how it's playing in the Black community. And then we got to dig into some history because some people, because of a clickbait, believe that this is a recent thing. Yeah. There have always been solidarities yeah. with Black folks and Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah. There has always been challenges. Yes. Black folks and Ashkenazi yeah. Jews, right? Yeah. So let's talk about Kyrie, but then let's get into some of that that history piece because that's that's really your forte. Couple notes on Kanye before I forget, and then I want to move to what we just said. His quote that slavery is a choice. Who's who's feeding him these lines, right? Who who's around him that's saying, you know, black people are playing victims, 
Slavery was a choice. It's a mindset. You got to break out of being in a slave mentality. You know, and the critique is when Kanye says something wild and offensive to black folks, it's okay and it's accepted by white America. But when he says something about Jews, which is interpreted to be white Jews, although there's black and brown and the hues of Jews, as they say, something to think about. And just him hanging out with Nick Fuentes and going to ask Donald Trump to be his running mate, I think is really interesting. And what does it mean that you're hanging out with a Holocaust denier in order to drum up so much controversy? And I don't know about if I believe the TMZ stuff that he's like a big fan of Hitler. Who knows? I don't know that stuff. Okay, Kyrie. Look, here's my take on the Kyrie thing. And I'll talk about what my friends are saying. But <laughs> I watched a clip from Hebrews to Negroes, the controversial movie. My hypothesis is that Kyrie watched this documentary. It was very focused on Egyptology, but in a kind of pseudoscience way that, you know, everybody was black and that somehow the white Jews are fake and that the black Jews were the real ones and that white Jews are not the real ones and something happened from the Egyptian times to modern times. Look, it's not a secret. There, There's a lot of black Jews. There's Ethiopian Jews. There's Ugandan Jews. There's a bunch of other Jews that we don't even... Tiffany Haddish's father's from Eritrea. He's, he's a Eritrean Jew. And apparently being Jewish in Eritrea was banned for a long time. Tiffany Haddish came out and did her whole bat mitzvah TV special, right? I'm, I'm an Eritrean Jewish woman. I think, you know, the Black Israelite movement started in the late 1800s when there was like the Christians were doing their second great awakening in the 1850s. And, and so I guess some Black folks got a hold of this notion, I forgot the name, James Cherry or some, somebody Cherry, um, that uh, all Black people are actually descendants of the Israelites and they're the real Jews, which is okay. If we want to make that narrative, I mean, I'm down with it, but why does that have to come at the exclusion of other shades of Jews. It, it, whenever I hear a narrative that we're the real ones and those other ones suck, then I'm like, hmm, are you using this to like change power and reclaim power? Because if we're all trying to liberate ourselves and each other and build that beloved community, we don't have to put down another group just to raise our own group. I think Kyrie put up the video and said, this is really dope. And then people are like, oh my God, it's denying the Holocaust and it's really offensive and it's saying white Jews are fake. Take it down. <sighs> I think it wasn't a great move on Kyrie's part. He did the right thing by saying, I'm not trying to hurt anybody. Mind you, this is also the guy that was really drumming up the notion that the world is flat. He's drumming up the notion that the vaccines are fake. So I'm not looking to this guy as a moral authority, a movie critic, a historian, but in the celebrity culture that we live in, people are looking to these folks as role models. And so was he doing a little bit of pushback saying like, no, F you, I'm not going to take it down. I see black liberation in this movie. You see Jew hatred. I'm not trying to do Jew hatred. I just like this movie. I mean, it's not the political correct thing to do and how the NBA responded. Maybe it was too much. I mean, you're allowed to put up ridiculously crazy things. I think if we step back even further, why is Amazon putting up 
a film that's openly hateful towards another group, right? And so then are we demonizing this black athlete who's maybe not that learned or scholarly about Jewish history, black history, whatever, he sees it because Amazon put its stamp of approval on it. And now we're blaming him, who's the messenger rather than the producer of this drech, as we say in Yiddish, it's garbage. That's that's my take on, on Kyrie. No, I love it. I think the the challenge is we give people platform that we don't give purpose. And it's often the people who are the least aware and educated, right? And it used to be the guy in prison who would read a bunch of books and then would talk like he knew everything, right? right. And now it's, well, I downloaded this and I watched this on Netflix and I'm yeah. listening to this podcast. And then you sound like you know something. Yeah. And when you start talking to people in the mosque or at the synagogue or at the church yeah. or the barbershop or at the whatever, the guy on the street corner, yeah. Oh, I feel that way too. It starts being that thing, but not because millions of people do it. The question is, you know, controlling some of that content because despite Kyrie's foolishness, he is a young brother. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and like we were saying about LeBron and others, mm -hmm. the best episodes of The Shop is where LeBron mm. is on there with President Obama. Mm -hmm. They are breaking down what happened in the bubble when Milwaukee walked off of the court when Jacob Blake was shot mm. and how the NBA players, you know, they walk off the court. They're supposed to be playing Orlando in a playoff game. And the Bucks didn't tell anybody. They just mm. didn't know. And so Orlando's sitting around. Finally, they leave. But see, all the players are there. They're all at Walt Disney World. So they're all here. And what are you doing? And so LeBron is talking about, then they all are meeting. And so you have several circles of NBA players. You know, you have the players, and then you have the leaders, and then you have the LeBrons and the Chris Pauls and that group. And there's a point where they don't know what to do, right? And they're like, look, there's guys here that want to say, screw it, let's go home. We're here in the bubble. We've done all these things. We've said Black Lives Matter. And they still paralyze Jacob Blake in, in right. Racine. And people were mad at the Milwaukee players because they didn't tell anybody and mm. all of this stuff. And LeBron talks about, well, huh. but that's their city. That's their state. They don't have to tell us anything, right? If they're rolling, we're rolling with them. But then it became, well, there was brothers who were like, forget it. It isn't going to make any difference. Let's all go home. And then there was other ones that wanted to keep playing. And LeBron is talking about how he and the group are sitting there. And he said, I know what we'll do. Let's call 44. Huh. You know, uh, call and Obama's sitting there just looking, right? And he says, and y'all called me late at night. Usually I'm in bed. And he's talking about, you know, these are just Black men in the shop, and they're talking about this conversation, how some of the most powerful billionaire world-changing men with platforms and money and all the things needed a coach. The humility that is, we don't know how to handle this. This is too much power for us. Let's... Let's get on the phone and call Barack. And Barack's like, shoot, y'all lucky I'm ans I answered. But then LeBron walks through how Barack helped coach them, this inner circle of NBA leaders, around what actions they wanted to take. Because Barack said, it isn't about me. Let's think about the consequences. Let's think, as you're pointing out with Kyrie, let's think about the unintended. 
Let's think about the potential harm. Let's think about the potential help that you all can do. But that level, when that's being described to me, that's what's missing sometimes in people's lives. And I think that to me, that's the juxtaposition is when you're dealing with Kanye, Yi, he's surrounded by people who are just going to feed him lies and foolishness. And then you have Kyrie, who potentially could, because it isn't like LeBron endorsed it. People are mad at LeBron when LeBron said, I'm not about hate, I'm about love. The brother's wrong. It's Kyrie's turn to call 23 and say, look, man, how do I do this? Huh. What am I missing? Huh. So interesting, but I think that the bigger conversation, Zach, huh. all of this history. So huh. we talked about some a lot of people say anti-Semitism is the longest form of hatred in the history of the country. And I think it's really interesting uh, we tie Judaism with both a people. Uh, and in our country, it's white people uh, and Jew, right? Uh -huh. But then also a religion. Can you talk a little bit about kind of this rise in anti-Semitism in the United States? Because it isn't lost on me that Judaism is a religion. But in the United States, we associate Judaism with a people group that is being discriminated against and is often, in Ashkenazi Jews' case, European-born, European-bred white people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of bad things happened in Europe. And then they exported those bad things to the rest of the world. <laughs> and we're all still paying the price for it, unfortunately. Although surprisingly, Europe has a higher standard of living now, and, and supposedly they're working out some of their racial issues. But I guess I'd have to talk to a Black person in France to confirm that. I heard it's not so great. But one of the original sins of Christian white Europe is demonizing Jewish people. So when you have a parent religion, and a child religion comes out of it, the child religion oftentimes has to demonize the parent in order to grow up and grow out, and in this case, take over the whole world. We see it a little bit with Hinduism, right? A great Hindu prince was Siddhartha, who then started Buddhism, and then um, Ashoka Maria converts all of India to Buddhism, just like Constantine converts all of Europe to Christianity. So if the analogy is Hinduism is the parent religion and Buddhism is the child religion, Judaism is the parent religion in Europe and Christianity is the child religion. And this is not a value judgment. I'm not saying it's a childish religion. Don't get me wrong. It comes out of Judaism, right? Paul and Peter are having debates. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is almost three or 400 years after Jesus existed and they're saying, Peter says, you have to become a Jew if you're going to praise and do what Jesus Christ was saying and preaching. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, you know what? Let's not do that. There's a lot of, there's 613 mitzvot. It's a lot of, you got to chop off part of your dingling. I mean, this is a lot of work. I'm having a tough time selling this to folks throughout Europe, let's just do a shortcut here. And you just pray to the, pray to the man and, and. You, you shall receive. It was a huge battle between the Gentile version of Christian Christendom, which is the Paul group, and the Jewish 
version of Christendom, which is the Peter group. Uh-huh. It's interesting because P- I always say I'm more Peter than I am Paul. There's <laughs> a lot of self-righteousness in Paul after he fell off that horse on, on the road to Damascus. And he just, you know, Peter was always in one second, you're the rock, and the next second, you're the devil. Yeah, He was just a regular dude who just felt like this loyalty, not just to the religion and the Messiah, mm. or the Jews in his mind. Mm. He wanted to attribute that to his best friend, right? He knew that's who his best friend was. Mm. And so in his mind as a Jew, born, raised, dirty hands Jew, not a Mm. Pharisee or a Sadducee, Mm. you know, fisherman, he didn't just think about Jesus as his friend, but the Messiah, but also the savior of the regular working class people Mm. that were Jewish. So... He saw the gateway to Jesus and to Christendom through Judaism. Sure. And that struggle between Peter and Paul has always been a challenge, especially for us who consider ourselves somewhat theologians, because Paul was a little more self-righteous. Peter was more regular, but we wouldn't be Christians if Peter's way happened because we would have had to be Jews. And so your idea of parent religion and child religion is well put because it is an origin religion and then a descendant religion. Mm -hmm. Same way with Islam, to some Mm -hmm. extent, to both, right? Mm -hmm. To Mm -hmm. Christianity and to Judaism. Mm -hmm. And maybe Judaism has two descendants, Christendom and Islam, but Mm -hmm. very similar Talk a little bit more about those roots in Europe. Let's go then. So surprise, stop me if this doesn't sound familiar, but there's systemic oppression towards a minoritized group in Europe. This happens to Black people in America, and it still continues today. But Jewish folks are not allowed to own land. You can't be farmers. That's just for the Christians. Uh, you could be. You could be bankers. You could be business people. You can work with money because it's dirty. We consider it dirty as Christians, but you can you can do it. They were not allowed to live amongst Christians. You guys caused the Black Death. You guys caused the the plague in the 1300s. You guys killed Christ, and so you're you're forever damned because you you killed Christ. But if you get into the stuff, I mean, Christ was Jewish as well, right? And so it was actually a class struggle within the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. And if you believe the story, the Pharisees that were running the show didn't like this socialist dude who was talking about an evolution revolution of thought and spirit. And let's stop focusing on all this, these coins with Caesar, right? Render unto Caesar with Caesar's and render unto God with God. Let's really love on each other and let's let's cleanse the feet of sex workers of people with leprosy of poor people and that's a threat to any rich person it just happened to be right and we talk about black on black crime because people live in the same neighborhood it's 90 percent. you look at white on white crime it's 90 percent because we're so segregated in the united states this was jewish on jewish crime right get rid of this and and your alignment with the black struggle and the field Negro and the house Negro, uh. to my, to me, remember, the massa was Caesar. Uh-huh. Nobody uh-huh. was, you know, <laughs> crucifixion is a Roman death. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nobody is killed 
in a Roman territory uh -huh. without Caesar's approval. Uh -huh. But Pontius Pilate, right, Pontius Pilate yeah. washes his hands of all right. of it. Right. So those are Romans. It's just right. Right. And yes, it, the power structure, it's the reason, and, and I talk about this oftentimes in, in my daily life and the work I do for a living, is that it will be days, weeks, months that I will have a Palm Sunday hmm. and I'll have a Good Friday. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, dang, man, it's same, it's these the same people. And one of the interesting pieces is though, Palm Sunday happens and those are the regular people. Right. That love. Jesus was a power to the people do, but nothing would have happened to Jesus if Rome didn't allow it. So mm -hmm. that had nothing to do with any Jews as far right. as- Right, right, right. And so isn't it ironic that the, the the Jews over there back in the day, they were not really free, right? They had this cloud of oppression from the Romans who were the occupiers. The Romans do their thing and then they, they collapse. And then we have the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is like not a great time to be Jewish, right? Because there's a lot of expulsions from England first, from the French territories, from the Spanish territories, because again, the notion that these people are dirty, they killed Christ. They look weird. They have different features than us Anglo-white Christians. And it's easy, you know, the Donald Trump playbook, to demonize another group in order to ascend to power for different kings during the Middle Ages. Now, King Balslav in Poland in the 1300s says, uh, Jews, you're welcome to come here. I heard you're a traveling, wandering people that gets kicked out of different countries and that you're business people because you're not allowed to own land. Therefore, you've gone into banking. We need a middle class in the kingdom of Poland. Come on down. And so what you have going from the Romans destroying the second temple in 70 AD and bringing Jewish slaves to Italy, you also have Jews obviously going to Iraq and Iran, but you also have Jews going to Eastern Europe and Russia as places that they maybe could survive on the fringes of society. Now you fast forward to the ghettos, right? Ghetto is G-H because it's from Italy, because the Italians, it literally, it's a city and it means an iron foundry. And it's a city in Italy because they didn't, the Christians didn't want to live with the, with the Jews nor the Roma people, right? Now, what happens in 1492 is this Catholic theocracy kicks out all the Muslims and the Jews from Spain. And the Inquisition then also comes to the new world, quote unquote. And so what is the Inquisition? It's burning Jews who don't convert to Christianity or Catholicism. And even if you convert to Catholicism, we still know you look different, you dress different. You're, I know your grandma, she used to light candles. We're still going to kill you. And you can't get that job and you can't get that da, 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 and you better not marry my daughter, all the things. So the Inquisition um, comes to Brazil. The Inquisition comes there and a, a group of, of Jewish uh, children and women escape and go to Cuba. And this is in the 1600s, 1640s. The Cubans don't want them. And then they, was the Spaniards are there, I think. And then they go to um, New Amsterdam, which is the Dutch, and Peter Stuyvesant, where you get Bed-Stuy, Peter Stuyvesant is the Dutch governor, and he doesn't really want him either, but he, whatever, 
telegraphs to uh, the Netherlands and they say, yeah, keep them. And so these are the first Jews in what becomes New York, right? It was New Amsterdam then. And they are coming at a time when they, I think they've already built the wall to keep out the Native Americans, which becomes Wall Street, which is the same area that they're selling black people at auction. Not the Jews necessarily, I'm just, just talking about Anglo whites or, or Dutch whites. So you have Jews in this precarious situation of not being the ruling class, in certain senses being the bottom of the bottom in Eastern Europe, but in America, as they gain momentum and as we see gain access to whiteness, which was actually not possible in Europe at the time, 3,000 Jews fought for the Confederacy, which is a painful, painful thing, especially speaking as a Jew who works for racial and economic justice. It, it pains my heart to know that our founding books in Judaism are about escaping from slavery. And then we had some hypocritical brothers and sisters who were owning slaves and fighting for uh, the Confederacies. And one of them was on the money. I don't want to lose that, Zach, what you said is Jews for the first time when they came to America gained access to whiteness uh -huh. and everything that comes with it. Talk a little bit about reparations. Well, I mean, it's very personal to me because I think it was in 1952, Germany was forced to start giving reparations to Jewish Holocaust survivors. Notice not to gay German folks who were being killed, to socialists who were being killed, or to Roma gypsy folks who were being killed, but to Jewish folks. And so my grandmother and grandfather were in Auschwitz, and they survived, and their families were mostly murdered all on my grandma's side, all of them. And they began to receive $300 per month, I think starting in 1962, so 10 years after this 1952 um, of, of West Germany, because East Germany was still communist. And so West Germany paid my family $300 per month as reparations for the Holocaust. Now, that's not going to bring back your dead brother and your dead sister and your dead parents but it is trying to make good on history. And in German, the law was Wettermachtgut, which is to make good on history. And this is something that we are not doing still in this country. We need to think about what Black reparations looks like. There's a great book called From Here to Equality uh, that I implore everyone listening to look at. And it's making the case and it's looking at who and how we should do Black reparations. There's some notions of writing checks to folks. There are notions of baby bonds for college or for changing housing loans. Or as my professor friend says, Black people shouldn't have to pay taxes because they've already built most of the structures in this country. So why should they have to pay taxes? I, I was really happy to see an article where Japanese folks, Japanese American folks and Jewish Ashkenazi American folks teamed together to start saying we benefited from reparations from our historical traumas. And we are in standing in solidarity for HR 40 and thinking about ways to do reparations like they're doing in Asheville and North Carolina and how they're doing housing vouchers up to $25,000.
in uh, Evanston, in Chicago. And these are, this is not, again, going to bring back people's ancestors. This is not going to be the reparative work of our time, but it is a start to the road of recovery because what Malcolm X said very eloquently was, if you stab a man in the back and you take out that knife a couple inches, it's still in the back. That's not healing. If you take out that knife and there's a huge gushing wound, that's not progress either. The whole point is to start healing that wound of that stab in the back. But Malcolm X said, the problem with America is that we don't even admit that there's a knife in people's back. We talk about even more mm -hmm. Jewish folks in where you live in LA, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. Obviously New York, Chicago, some mm -hmm. of these communities really benefiting from the very laws that were there to do harm to black and brown folks, whether it be redlining, property ownership, all of those good things. Talk a little bit about some of that history so we can walk through that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. So at 1915, a brother named Leo Frank, who's an Ashkenazi white Jew, is lynched in Murrieta, Georgia. And this is the rise of a lot of anti-Semitism um, that also started in the 1870s with the KKK, with anti-Black stuff, but also anti-Jewish stuff. One other highlight that I think we should, I would be remiss to not talk about is in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Booker T. Washington teams up with a brother named Julius Rosenwald. And Julius Rosenwald was the um, CEO of Sears. And he, you know, initially was kept out because he's Jewish and then he worked his way up. Okay. Um, and he teams up with Booker T. Washington to create 5,700 schools for black folks in the South. And this is a white Jewish guy saying, I have a lot of money now and I know my people are being killed in pogroms in Europe. And I know your people are being killed right here in the South. I'm gonna do something good with my money because my Jewish values tell me to kun olam, repair the world, I gotta do this. This mitzvah takes place between the black and the, and the Ashkenazi Jewish community. Fast forward, we're in the 1960s. The brother that goes on right before the I Have a Dream speech, 1963, March on Washington, Rabbi Prince. He was the rabbi from Berlin who got chased out by the Nazis and gives a speech saying, they're killing my people over there. And I know they're killing your people right here. I have a duty as a, as a, as a Jewish white Ashkenazi guy who got out of that situation if I'm silent about your genocide here, then I'm not being a good human. I'm not being a good Jew. And he he gives a speech of this nature right before um, the I Have a Dream speech from Dr. King. From 1910 to 1967, we have what we call the Ashkenazi and Black Golden Age. They're living in similar cities. They're living, they're forced to live in similar neighborhoods. And they're forced into a similar economic condition. Ashkenazi Jews are still benefiting from being lighter skin. They're not quite white yet, but they're about to get there, right? So in 1967, 
Sammy Davis Jr. has a famous line where he's, he's black and Jewish and he says, I'm being pulled in both directions, right? Uh, but I'm both, you know, I contain both in my body, right? He converted to Judaism because he had a lot of Jewish friends and he, he had a terrible car accident. And when he woke up, he, his friend had placed in his hand the Jewish star and he opened it and it was, you know, the Jewish star of that, of that was still in his hand. So in 1967, we see the rise of Jewish nationalism with the 1967 war in Israel, where Israel becomes more militarized, et cetera, et cetera. And we see the rise of black power and black nationalism with the rise of Stokely Carmichael, who says, we don't need whitey anymore. We're going to get black power by ourselves. And so then you see a, a, a cleavage and a pushing out of, of these two communities, physically, spiritually, and otherwise, because you have, again, in 1968, the Fair Housing Act, which says no more racial covenants, all that crap with no Mexicans, no Blacks, no Jews in this neighborhood, on paper gets thrown out, right? De jure is no longer, but de facto, we know, whew, still goes on today. And so you have white flight, you have white Jewish flight from these neighborhoods. Now you also have, if you could get out, you have Black flight from some of those black neighborhoods. So black doctors and lawyers and et cetera go elsewhere. So now you're now you're left with what we now call, ironically, not the European Jewish ghettos, but ghettos for black folks and now brown folks and other folks, unfortunately. And so you have communities that in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in Los Angeles are not living with each other anymore but form political coalitions that elect Tom Bradley, who's the first black mayor in 1972 to 1992 with a black Jewish coalition. But you also have cleavages of these groups pulling apart and not knowing each other anymore, not being proximate to each other and not caring about each other. And also the elephant in the room that you've alluded to is black folks can't get white. Jewish folks could ascend to whiteness and the overt um, anti-Jewish, you can't join this country club, you can't come to this restaurant, you can't do this thing, that melts away. So white Jews are able to ascend to positions. Now, this is where, you know, Kanye parroting something that he's heard of these music execs are white Jews and they're screwing me over. They've been screwing over black people for a long time. Are there some Jewish white execs who were the middleman between the 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 upper the upper you know corporate types and the the talent and they were screwing people over hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and talk, talk about that for a second because there have historically been not just in the record industry but in a bunch of industries mm-hmm. there have been Jewish folks who are mm-hmm. kind of the middle person between the anglo white power structure and the black worker the black employee the black tenant the black this the black that or the brown all of those things and the jewish folks had to kind of navigate those things while protecting their whiteness because i would say you know you have the stereotypical jewish money thing yeah i don't think anybody's protecting money more i protect whiteness if I could put on some dang whiteness, Jack, right. I put some on. <laughs> and I might protect it. I mean, my mother is a whole white woman and I've got nothing out of it except for low blood pressure. That's it. 
right? So we have these cases of Jewish folks playing the middle person and to be honest, being then seen in particular by the people who are in the struggle and suffering as being part of that power structure and being seen as kind of a get along, go along group. Let's keep your head down. You black folks are causing too much trouble. People have to start reading some firsthand history because we have this idea that everybody was marching with King. Uh, there was a whole bunch of wealthy middle-class black people that said, stop causing all that trouble. Right. You read about the pastor who was at King's church in Atlanta before King was there. They ostracized him. Mm. He was making a way for King, Vernon Johns, right? Making a way for King. And But that was a church of affluence. It was a church of black business owners, shopkeepers who just didn't want trouble, mm. right? And so talk a little bit about those middleman roles and mm. how those things kind of, they were initially an advocacy, but then they became a um, a potential liability to the relationship. So love it. Love it. Okay. One thing I want to say is, and I learned this recently that, all right, there's only 15 million Jews in the world, one five. Okay. And we know the number of 6 million were killed in the Holocaust. It's a group that's small and it's a group that's been killed a lot in Europe and other places. And they've had to rely on organizing amongst themselves. So I learned recently that in Eastern Europe, in some of these temples, they would act as community centers, but also banks. Because I can't bank in the Christian bank. I mean, it's kind of like what we hear from black and brown communities today. I can't trust these white institutions. So Jews in Europe couldn't trust these Anglo-Christian institutions, nor were they allowed to participate in them. So then it's ironic that the ruling, uh, whatever, race, class, whatever you want to say, demonizes these people, doesn't let them use the institutions. And then when these Jewish folks organize themselves, they say, aha, you guys are sneaky. You're organizing, aren't you? Ah, you're scheming behind our back. You're, you're pooling your money, aren't you? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, how else are you going to survive, right? So they, because they, if they don't, they get their heads cut off by the Cossacks who are the czar's military police that are literally cutting people's heads off and cutting women's breasts off and all these terrible stories that actually my great grandmother apparently would tell my mother these stories that these Cossacks would come through the villages and kill people. So in the United States, let's take, for example, my family. Bonilla Silva has a great racial dichotomy where Bonilla Silva is talking about there's monolithic, he calls it whiteness or whites. He says whites are at the top of this pyramid. And then in the middle of the pyramid, you have honorary whites. And at the bottom of this pyramid, this is a racial schema, you have collective blacks. And within collective blacks, you can have Filipinos, you can have Hmong, you can have Cambodian, uh, Guatemalan, Salvadorian. Within honorary whites, you could have Jewish folks, Korean folks, Chinese folks, and then in whites, whites, you know, maybe we can make the argument that Jews have reached that place. But then when someone like Trump or Kanye or Nick Fuentes comes out, then it gets, they maybe get sucked down back into that honorary white space. I'm saying this because this is a wedge, a wedge community between whiteness and blackness. Okay. In America. And they call 
East Asian folks sometimes derog, I don't know, derogatorily, whatever, the new Jews. Uh, and there's a joke, you know, of course, Mark Zuckerberg marries Priscilla Chan and, you know, all these white Jewish guys really liking these Asian American women. There is a shared wedge community-ness because of the racialized capitalism that we find ourselves in that my father comes to this country in 1950, was born in a refugee camp in Bavaria, Bavarian Motor Works, BMW. His father doesn't have money. His whole, you know, most, a lot of his family was killed in Auschwitz. Um, some people survived. Comes to this country with no money, but there's a, some established Jews here that have gotten smart and pooled some of their money. So when the immigrants come, hey, why don't you come work in my market? You could stack the shelves. Okay, he works his way up. And these markets are not in Jewish neighborhoods. This is where the problem, you see the problem here, right? These markets that also sell liquor are in black and brown neighborhoods, right? So that's where this, well, you're the middleman and you're selling liquor to my community and, and, and you're, you're, you're bad Jews. Well, fast forward to 1991, 92, we have Korean folks owning these same markets and these same liquor stores that my grandfather, rest his soul, survived the Nazis but couldn't survive smoking cigarettes and died of cancer from cigarettes in 1976. That Korean grandma shoots Batasha Harlan's in the back of the head for stealing a 50 cent, 50 something cent orange juice. And that's an encapsulation of this middleman thing that we own these places, we are taking your money, we're trying to just survive too. And then I'm literally going to shoot you in the back of the head. Because, and I'm struck by, you know, and my brain immediately goes to hurt people, hurt people. Mm. I, mm -hmm. I sat with many, you know, I grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, greatest place on earth. One of the only places outside New York that Jewish people could own land. Get it. But one of the biggest struggles is like when I really started reading in undergrad and getting into understanding the sitting and reading speeches of Malcolm X and sitting down and, and digesting Stokely Carmichael and understanding all the things and then sitting down with my Jewish friends, it started to be like a pain-a-thon. <laughs> There is enough, but we do that all the time as Black people, right? Like immediately when you're saying to me, oh, you know, he was stacking shelves, my brain as a Black man immediately went to, at least you could get a job in the damn store. Right, and right. At least you could do that. Right. That kind of mindset is exactly how the system wants us to think. Mm -hmm. The difference is you and I, because we love each other, my first brain is, don't, what What did you just think? Yeah. What the hell is wrong with you? We don't have to do this price tag on pain and trauma. Mine's worse than yours. Mine's worse. At least you could, I mean, all of the things that you're schooling us on. So one of the pieces I, I want you to leave us with, first off, the difference between Judaism, Ashkenazi Judaism, right? Like you're talking about being an Ashkenazi Jew, what that is. Talk a little bit about Judaism as a religion and Judaism as a ethnic group, people group, race, as we would call it in this country. Talk about how you delineate those two things. Let's go there. All right. So look, you have your Ashkenazi, who Ashkenaz means Eastern Europe. Uh, so that's my people. 
You have your Sephardic Jews, which are Sephard is Spain. Emma Lazarus was a Sephardic Jew. She wrote the poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your, your Hungry, Your Yearning Masses, Yearning to Breathe, Breathe Free. You have Mizrahi Jews, which are, you know, Ethiopian folks, Indian Jews, um, Kaifeng, Chinese Jews, Persian Jews. So you have this thing where Judaism in America, because of the Enlightenment in Europe, and Voltaire was a big anti-Semite, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Enlightenment people were not so enlightened, but there was, when Napoleon comes through in 1800, he he liberates the Jews, so to speak. And he goes to the Sanhedrin, which are the different, you know, Jewish leaders in the different um, cities and whatnot. And he says, look, you got to, you got to make up your mind. You're either going to take off all your stuff and modernize and become a real Frenchman, or we're going to leave you behind. You want a seat at the table, then you got to modernize. And so it's almost this forced conversion into secularness and modern modernity. And so that's where you have a big strain of Jews becoming more secular. And then it, there's the reform movement and there's the reconstruction movement. So, and you have the first bat mitzvah in 1953 with the reconstruction movement of Mordechai Kaplan, who bat mitzvahs his, his kid, his daughter. This is the one of the big first times in U.S. history that, that a woman becomes bat mitzvah, 1953, right? Um, he says, Mordechai Kaplan, who creates the reconstruction movement, says, um, Judaism is a traveling civilization. You don't have to have God in there. You don't have to have a temple. You are we are a traveling civilization. We some of us from Europe eat this type of food. Some of us from Ethiopia eat this type of food. Um, but we are a people. We are united people, even though we have different shades. Um, and this is what we find today: is a lot of Jews are secular, and so this is. The same crap that if you look at, um, you know, some of like Lenny Rief, no, it wasn't Lenny Riefenstahl, but there's a famous uh, movie called The Eternal Jew. And it shows that look at all these secular Jews that have assimilated to German culture. And it has this this um, before and after. See, look, they're they're drinking wine and they're smoking and they're just like us. But look at them when they're on the shtetl in Poland, and then they have the long beards. But once they cut off the beards, then they could be like us, and they could marry a wife, and they could da 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 So you have the same crap. I mean, Steve Bannon is a smart guy. He studied all these Hitler you know, documentaries and uh, films. This is the playbook of power shift. We're going to end white genocide. You know, all this garbage is taken from the Hitler playbook. If we really care and love each other and want collective healing and liberation. We need to put our money where our mouth is. We need to share our privilege and our power as light-skinned Jewish folks. And we need to listen to what we can do and how we can serve and show up for other communities. And just because a black celebrity says some foolishness to start running for president, doesn't mean that we look at all of our black coworkers, friends, and think that they think the same thing as Kanye West. Zach, I love it, man. Here's the thing that I love about what you're saying and about who you are. The time, the talent, the treasure, it all starts with self-examination, though. Thank you, man. I appreciate you making this space, and I hope our listeners just, you know, start doing the reflective work of looking at, you know, um, 
uh, what's her name? Layla Saeed's white supremacy and me, right? And unpacking this stuff that we've been socialized since day one. And how can we stop doing the oppression Olympics and start saying, how can I help? How can I leverage my position in this racialized hierarchy to, to do some good in the world? Love you, man. Peace. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Get Uncomfortable, the podcast with Adam A. Smith. This podcast is produced in partnership between Adam A. Smith and Rachel Hansen. Links to everything mentioned in the episode today, as well as Rachel and Adam's contact information, will be included in the show notes. Thank you.